0: The following audio is brought to you by Emanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Okay, um, so tonight we are uh, uh, going to move into a kind of a slight transition. I want to I prepare you a little bit um, and just reiterate what um, I've said a few times, but, you know, it's, it's always good to repeat. The period of Jewish history that we're talking about right now and we're studying um, is a time period where very little is written. And much is written on the world stage, little is written on the Jewish stage. So as it concerns Israel or Palestine or the the operation of the, God's people within the land and, and that kind of thing, there's not tons of information. And so when you do get some information, there are big parts that they leave out. Uh, so we're going to talk about the formation of the Pharisees in, in the coming weeks of Sadducees and the um, various different groups that are, that are formed inside Israel. And we're sometimes left to conclude certain things by what people tell us, but it's not like anyone ever said, and this was the date that the Pharisees formed or, or what have you. So We're without some of that information, and so we have to piece together a lot of the details. So you'll have to kind of bear with me on some of those things, as maybe some of them aren't as precise as we'd like them to be. But I want to just remind you of where we've come from, uh, what we talked about last week. Remember that uh, Jerusalem, in the year 168, on December 25th to be precise, There was a a man who is the ruler of the Seleucid dynasty at the time. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus IV, is uh, really mad about what's going on in Jerusalem. They have sought an opportunity. When he's been preoccupied with Egypt, there was rumors that he had died. And so they start uh, basically trying to now gain control back of Jerusalem, away from this liberal direction that, um, that it's being taken. And so they try to kick out some of the, the high priests that's there, and some of the leadership that might be taking it in that liberal direction. and Because they think, well, Antiochus is dead, he's, he's in Egypt, and he died in battle there. And it turns out, they were wrong. He was very much alive. And when he got word of this uh, coup that was taking place back in Jerusalem... He leaves for Jerusalem and gets there with his army and comes down with a hammer on top of Jerusalem. And basically what he does is re the liberal direction that it was going. And when I say liberal, what I mean is the Jews had begun going in this direction of Greek culture, of Hellenization, of adopting all of the Greek gods into their pantheon, as it were, begins to make sacrifice to these Greek gods. And in this kind of coup that had taken place, they're trying to go back the other direction. So when Antiochus comes into Jerusalem, he's going to make sure that he puts a, you know, a lid on this coup and reverses it back. So kind of going like this, we're going back and forth, but go, go back in the direction of Hellenization. And so what he does is not only does he come in and squash the rebellion, but then he introduces reintroduces, as it were, daily sacrifices to Zeus, the main Greek god. And what is involved with the worship of Zeus is the sacrificing of pigs, which is particularly anathema to Jewish people. And so when he takes over the temple again, he does this so by sacrificing a pig on the altar in the temple, which is the epitome of desecration uh, of the temple. It's uh, An abomination of of all sorts. And so um, Antiochus does this, and then he also begins some more oppressive measures where he he begins to institute worship of Zeus far and wide, outside of Jerusalem. Well, there are people in the surrounding areas, and, and stop me if you've heard this one, the people in the country outside of the big cities tend to be more conservative than the ones in the big cities. This has always been the case. Throughout human history, this has been the case. And that's what you find in Israel as well. So in Jerusalem, some people might have just kind of kept quiet and go along to get along, sort of deal. And okay, there's the worship of Zeus. Well, I don't really like that, but who you know, what am I gonna do about it? But they get out to the country and start talking to the country folk, and they say, look, you gotta start sacrificing to Zeus. Well, they meet a priest by the name of Mattathias out in the country, and he is of the priestly ilk, and he's leading his his town, and he has uh, several sons, uh, three of which become pretty prominent. But they tell him, listen, Mattathias, you're going to have to sacrifice to Zeus. You're going to have to sacrifice a pig. And he says, no, I ain't doing it. So another Jew, his compatriarch, steps up and says he will and begins to sacrifice a pig, and Mattathias kills him right there on the spot. The Seleucid, uh, you know, army or military, small little troops that, that came there to enforce these laws, you know, grab him and seek to seize him and, you know, may arrest him or whatever he would say. And Mattathias and his three sons kill all the soldiers too. And this begins a rebellion of the Hasmoneans. So he's of the family of Hasmone. So that's where they get the Hasmonean name. So he, uh, he and his sons take off and they go hide in some caves and they start gathering some uh, forces together to go and actually win back the Holy Lands. So they're on a crusade of sorts to have all of this you know, overturned. And so you'd think, like, well, what can some little you know, peasant guys out in the country do against a powerful dynasty like the Seleucid dynasty? Well, don't underestimate the people that are, that have a lot of motivation, all right? <laughs> I mean, don't, don't underestimate them. So they, uh, pretty soon after that, Mattathias dies and turns the dynasty over to his sons, and one by one, particularly Judas, his oldest boy, takes over the, the throne and Begins to get enough of a rebellion going and attract enough forces that within three years they're able to walk back into Jerusalem. In fact, on the same day, December twenty-fifth, three years later, walk back into Jerusalem and take back over the temple and drive out the Seleucid forces there in Jerusalem. And so they uh, so they they get them out and they start this cleansing process of the temple, and this cleansing process lasts for eight days. This becomes the celebration of Hanukkah that that Jews still celebrate every year right around the time of Christmas. It's an eight-day celebration, and that celebration is basically the rededication or the re-cleansing of the temple when they drove out the Seleucid forces and they reinstituted worship of the one true and living God there in the temple. So, uh, so they, they light a candle each day of Hanukkah for eight days uh, to celebrate the progressive cleansing of the temple and God's Spirit coming back uh, to the Jewish people. So, but that's not the end of the Maccabean Revolt. Um, they, uh, m- m- um, Mattathias, his three sons, Judas, Jonathan, Simon basically formed the Hasmonean dynasty, which we're going to deal with a little bit tonight. And so they got some, um, some uh, uh, victories together. They, they uh, obviously ended up driving out a lot of the Seleucid forces. And so for the next many years, the Hasmonean dynasty is going to kind of really sort of take back control of Israel. And it's going to be a progressive uh, situation. They're going to begin taking control back of Jerusalem. I just realized I didn't read the second bullet point there, but that's okay. Uh, if you were here last week, you got it. If not, you got a recording book. So um, with that in mind, let's let's get started talking about the Hasmonean dynasty. So um, where are we at? There it goes. Um, as they began to have military victories, what's important to understand is that there's never a point, not now, or even in the future, or even right now, in Jewish history, where they're really going to have complete control of the Holy Land again. Okay, so um, so even up to even up to this day, obviously 1949, 48, 49 is a big uh, is a big movement for for the Jews over in that area of the world. But even still, there's not complete control, and so. The Greek rulers, the Seleucid dynasty, they're going to occupy the same territory as the Hasmoneans as they begin to have military victories uh, and take back small pieces of the Holy Land. The Greeks are still there. So they'll continue to have these little skirmishes with the Seleucid forces. They'll continue to have uh, some victories, some losses. It's going to to be a, a tug of war constantly until the Romans come in and basically just occupy the entire area. Once the Romans come in, it's kind of all over at that point, but while the Greeks are there, it's constantly a a battle. And, uh, you know, Judas and his brothers became known as the Maccabees. The name, we think, means the hammers. They're a a powerful force, they, they kind of take on that nickname, lightning and thunder, not, you know, the hammer, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and so they, they have that nickname because of how powerful their military prowess is and what they were able to do. But the family that they're in is the Hasmon family. So it's the Hasmonean dynasty, is a, is a group, a family of Jewish priests that were able to kind of lead a rebellion for a number of years within Israel. Well, um, so... But in the meantime, in Palestine, uh, it's going to be a constant battle between the Greek rulers and the Maccabean rebels. And so following Judas' reign, he get hands the, the throne, as it were, the, it's not really a throne, but the, the leadership, as it were, over to his brother Jonathan. And Jonathan will take control of the, of the, the army and things like that for the next 18 years. And in 152 B.C., he becomes high priest. Now, here's what I want you to see as you kind of follow this. There's not really a king, per se, because they don't own the whole all the land, right? They're sharing it with the Greeks, and there's constant battle. So there's not a king, per se. Second, what you'll also notice is that though the Maccabees or the, the Hasmoneans are priests, they're not necessarily the descendant of, of Aaron precisely. They're not necessarily on, on the way to being high priest. But they get to be high priest because they're leading the rebellion. Also, you'll notice that their names don't appear in Jesus' lineage. Right? So when you get to Matthew and you get the list of the kings descended from David, these names don't appear there. And, and for good reason, because they're not in line to be king. So you have to remember that the Jews are keeping track, obviously. They know who should be in line, but they don't have a king on the throne. It's the one who is the strongest, who, who has the, the most power. That's the one that they're following. That's their leader, right? So it, it doesn't function like the kingdom does under David and Solomon. Don't think that way. This is a rebellion, and they're kind of going with striking the, with the, the one that's got the hot hand. Does that, that make sense? You know, you kind of, just like in basketball, you feed it to the guy that's got the hot hand. It's the same kind of thing here. The, these guys are, are having some uh, good luck, I guess you would say, in, in push, pushing back against the Greeks. And so we're going we're gonna to follow them. We're going to submit to them. So the Hasmoneans were, as I said, a priestly family. But Jonathan gained the office, not because of his family background, but because he commanded the army. He was the most powerful. He was the one that was gaining the most ground against the Greeks. And so we're going to continue to go with him. So throughout Israel's history, history, uh, the functions of the political ruler and the priesthood had been kept strictly separate. So Jonathan's accession to the high priesthood made him friends with the Seleucid king, but may have provoked the formation of a separatist group of priests who moved to an isolated location along the western shore of the Dead Sea at Qumran. Okay. Um, many of you have probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yes? Any of you have been to Israel? Hands up. So, a good number. Okay. Um, if you have been, you will normally, you will take a trip out, If you, you'll go out to Qumran, okay, so normally you'll take a trip out in the desert and there you will, it's not, it's not much to look at, to be honest with you, it's, it's just a lot of sand dunes, <laughs> essentially. But in the caves of Qumran, there is, uh, is, this is where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and essentially, uh, as the story goes, a little Arab boy threw a rock into a cave, and he hit something that sounded like pottery, and he went in there, and he finds all these scrolls, the, the, the Bedouin Arabs that were in the area at the time began to take them up, and they were sort of a thick parchment, and so they made shoes out of them, and uh, all kinds of other things, and it later was discovered that what they had on their feet, and what they were kind of trading in, was ancient texts of the Bible, more ancient than any copy we had at the time, all right? So that... The significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls cannot be underscored enough. It advanced biblical study years into the future just by finding what we found there. Um, And so they were trading them and selling them all across the known world, and so people were trying to buy them up then and and collect them together. I think we got a lot of them, but there is no telling what texts are out there. But there's, there's a group of people that at some point in time move out to the... The caves of Qumran and just live out there by the Dead Sea. It's desert; nobody lives out there, right? They are going out there to get away from all the craziness that's happening in Jerusalem and with all of this stuff that's going on right then. So, what what is very clear and what start what is starting to emerge on the scene is that here's the Hasmonean dynasty, whose Their their founding purpose was to push back against the Greeks and to be separate from the Greeks and really to drive the Greeks out of the land, to, to rule the land ourselves. We as Jews want you gone, Gentiles gone, and we want to rule this land ourselves, right? That's how it started. Well, as you know, anything that starts with that the purest of intentions will eventually just give it enough time. It will veer off course. And that is already beginning to take place even with the sons of Mattathias. So they're already getting to a place where power and prestige and office and money already begin to appeal to them. So here is Jonathan, who who has now uh, taken over the reins for his brother Judas, and He becomes high priest, and as high priest, the Greeks are right there with him. So he's having to meet with and talk to the Greek, the Seleucid king at the time. And so he basically strikes up a working relationship, as it were, with the Greeks. Well, this doesn't go over too well with a group of people who were behind you for the purposes of ousting the other, right? Uh, And so you've got this these groups that are kind of getting fed up with all of the politics and so they decide instead of sticking with it and fighting for you know whatever cause the political leader decides on that day they decide to form a community out in the outskirts of town that community is going to end up it seems like being some of the most conservative people and some of the maybe some of the best people uh, in the whole land, some of the people that actually do love the Lord and want to see Israel restore, you know, be restored in worship. So, um, so you can kind of start to see these different groups forming inside the land, where it's not just now the ones that are in favor of the Greeks and the ones that are against the Greeks. It's the ones that go, hey, wait a minute. What happened to worshiping the Lord? What happened to actually you know, following after God, the God of the Bible. What, what happened to that? Can we get back to that? And, and so there's a lot of different groups that are beginning to pop up. So, so we're going to start getting into the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all, all the Essenes and all of these different groups that start to form in the land. Some of them you've heard of, some of them you've not heard of. Um, but all of them are forming because of the kinds of stuff that's taking place here. But notice this too. All of them are going to have a purpose. When you hear the the term Pharisee, or the term Sadducee, you recognize those terms as what? What did they do? They play a key role in the New Testament. And what is their key role? Opposing Jesus. They're going to be the instigators of His crucifixion. So, like it or not, they're necessary. Their political bent is necessary. Someone is going to have to crucify Jesus. That is a foregone conclusion. Peter tells us that in Acts. That's going to happen. They are necessary components of that. But then you've got the Essenes. Never heard of the Essenes, have we? Mo- most of us have not ever heard of the Essenes. But one, a super conservative group out on the outskirts of town that care deeply about the Word of God, enough to preserve it and copy it for generations to come. That's one. Two, likely, the people that shepherded and raised John the Baptist. So, you can kind of see where when he comes on the scene with his bushy hair and eating locusts and living out in the wilderness and all kinds of things, why they might be necessary out there on the outskirts of town. At least we think. So, I'm going to go with that. So, okay. Um, so Jonathan was really successful, in, at least in worldly standards, he was really successful. He was successful in battle, he obviously acquired a lot of honors for himself, but was eventually murdered by a political rival. And that's how it goes, alright, you know? Sorry brother. Okay, <laughs> well following Jonathan, his brother Simon, he's the last of the Maccabees, the last of the, uh, of the sons of Mattathias, um, takes over. And he is able to, by his political ability, by his military ability, he's able to get a lot of freedom. He's able to expel a lot of, a lot more Seleucid troops. So we're making more gains against the Greeks. He's able to do a lot more. He's finally able to take uh, control of the citadel in Jerusalem, the main kind of fortress there in Jerusalem, and drive out a lot of the Seleucid troops. And he kind of it kind, of, it kind of becomes known under Simon's rule that the land was freed of the Gentiles. At least that was kind of the, the phrase, the moniker that was sort of handed down. But we know they're still there. They're still very much there. They're just not in Jerusalem. So finally, the, the, the book of 1 Maccabees, which records Mattathias and his three sons and their rule up to the death of Simon, 1st Maccabees close and 2nd Maccabees opens. And so 2nd Maccabees is basically basically the author's way of saying the real Maccabees are all dead. Now we're going into the Hasmonean dynasty, just back to the old family. They don't have the same set of values, it doesn't seem. They don't have the same military prowess. Now we're just handing the king. This is basically now just David, Solomon, that kind of thing, but a whole different line, essentially, is what, what it sort of feels like. And so a, a man by the name of John Hyrcanus, uh, do you notice the name is different? Like the, na- the last name sounds different? Do you notice that? Like it, the, the style of name sounds different than, than Maccabee. It sounds a lot more Greek, doesn't it? Uh, so, so you're going to, we'll just keep going and you'll see this even more. Um, He was actually he had he had some abilities. He seemed to he seemed to have a lot of promise when he takes over the throne. And you notice the years there of his reign is one thirty four to one o four. So he expanded family control over Judea, gained greater power over Shechem and Samaria, and conquered Edomia, which is the land of Edom. That's Esau's kids. Uh, He he forced inhabitants of those areas to convert to Judaism. He forced circumcision. He forced the worshipers there to obey Jewish laws. So, he's showing a lot of promise. Right? Seems like it anyway. However, even after all the efforts that he made to drive out the Greeks, the succession after John Hyrcanus from Aristobulus, notice the name again is very Greek, in 104, takes over only for a year, hands the throne off time after time, all the way down to here, Canis II, up to 40 BC, that's, that's the point where the Romans come in, became progressively more Hellenized. So, regardless of all the gains that were made by the Maccabees, the Hasmoneans, same family, right? Regardless of all the, the great promise. That was shown up front of what they were going to do to the Greeks and, and to win back the Holy Land, it eventually veered off course. Why? Power, money, prestige, friendship with the world. Gradually, it all starts to drift. So it, it, it's not a mystery. These people are the same that you see around you today. They are you. It's the same. Human nature hasn't changed at all. These are the things that will continually drag anyone adrift. Power, money, friendship with the world. Period. Anyone that you know in your life that has, over time, drifted from Christianity. Power, money, friendship with the world. One of the three is going to be the cause, typically. So what is it it Jesus warns about so much? Power, money, friendship with the world. (laughs) It hasn't changed, folks, at all. It's not a mystery. Um, But essentially that's, again, what, what leads Him adrift. But... I don't want to. I don't want to pass by this because it, it's it's worth really thinking about and dwelling on. Even with all the sinfulness of man at the time, who started off with the greatest of intentions and ended up back where they started, all of it still served a purpose. Every single aspect of it still served a purpose. Okay, so now we're gonna we we need to talk about because. We need we need to go back and really look at some of these groups that are going to be really important for the New, for the New Testament that we're going to be going into. And the first is the Pharisees. Now I, I want again to just sort of preface. There's it's not like you get you know John Phariseus that says I'm going to start a group today and we're going to be called the Pharisees. Ready team? You know three, two, one. Pharisees, let's go. And, and then somebody records it down. It's, it doesn't happen like that. We've talked about for a number of weeks now that there's a group called the Hasidim, which are typically referred to as the pious ones. Um, this is probably the group that then sort of morphs into the group that we know as the Pharisees. And it's hard to tell exactly why, though, Right? We know there was a group called the Hasidim on the scene at the time. In fact, that's the ones that Mattathias, after he kills that guy and kills the, his, him and his sons kill the you know, Greek soldiers, they run off to the caves north of Jerusalem and they meet up with this group called the Hasidim. And what is it that they want? Well, the Hasidim want to take control back of the temple so that we can worship God again. And Mattathias and his folks... They want to do that too, but mainly they want to drive the Greeks out. Well, because they have common cause, because their their desires overlap, they join forces together. But they part company when Mattathias and the Maccabees go, Hey, we got to fight, even if it's on Sabbath. And the pious ones, the Hasidim, say, We can't fight on the Sabbath. Well, as we saw last week, what happens when you decide we have principles and we're going to live by them and we're not going to fight on the Sabbath day, when is your enemy going to attack you? On the Sabbath day. They're going to play golf every other day of the week and they're going to attack you on the Sabbath day because that's the day you won't fight. And it's exactly what happens. And a lot of them die. And so the Maccabees kind of part company with the Hasidim, the pious ones, because of their religious convictions. And they're like, well, if we obey those religious convictions, we're going to die and it'd be worth it more to survive. So they part company there. But what is apparent is that there's a point in time where the Pharisees come onto the scene, and in Josephus' writings, the name just appears. The Pharisees. And the Pharisees oppose John Hyrcanus. That's it. Where'd they come from? Where'd they go? We don't know, right? <laughs> but their values are very similar to the Hasidim, and you don't really see the Hasidim mentioned anymore once the Pharisees are mentioned. So you kind of take it that one probably morphs into the other, or at least, they're, at least they probably had some sort of common cause. The term Pharisee probably comes from an Aramaic word meaning separatists, and it may have been originally a derogatory term, right? Like calling somebody a fogey. You're old you old fogey. And then all of a sudden we became yeah, we'll become the fogies. That's that's gonna be the name of our group. (laughs) You know? It's like you're the you're the ancient ones. You're the you're the ones that y'all are separatists. You just you just you know, you're you know, whatever, you're bent in that direction, whatever. And then that they sort of kind of take it on as a moniker. At least that's the way it kind of seems or it comes across. And so, although it's unclear why they took Uh, on the name, and why specifically they were referred to as separatists, what's probably the case is, just because of their ideology, they were very unwilling to submit to Greek customs. They didn't want anything to do with Greek culture. They certainly didn't want to capitulate to the Greek food laws. They wanted to keep Jewish dietary restrictions. When you get into the New Testament, when you see the Pharisees coming to Jesus, what are their big concerns? Why are you operating on the Sabbath day? Why are you not washing your hands? Why are you eating those kinds of things? And who are you eating with? Right? They have have these particular concerns with Jesus Because that's what the Pharisees do. That's how they were formed. And you have to imagine, if you take yourself back into that time period, you can understand why they have the concerns that they do. Because we have seen, over the course of several hundred years, the Hellenization in this country of people that want to bow down to Greek gods Because they adopted Greek culture, they adopted Greek customs, they adopted Greek clothing and Greek haircuts, and all of those things ended up producing a Greek way of life which leads to the sacrificing of a pig on the altar in the temple. Right? You can see the chain of logic. And why, when Jesus comes onto the scene, they might be a little concerned that he doesn't wash his hands like the rest of the Jews do. That's what the pagans do. They, they don't wash their hands before they eat. We do. Why are you not doing that? You're calling yourself the Messiah? You're the one that was sent from God? You're the one that was the Son of God? And yet, you act like the Greeks? You act like the pagans? No. I mean, let's just, let's just do this. Okay, I'm going to just go this way, okay? Imagine Jesus were to come today as a Democrat. How many in this church would be like, wait, what? Do you know what they stand for? That's the kind of shock that would be there, right? Sorry I went there. I shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have done it. I don't know why I did. I made the point, okay? So just, that's as far as I want to take it. Don't start going anywhere else with it, all right? Okay. Do what? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, he he comes in with a face tattoo. Yeah, you're like, "What? Uh, what? Doesn't mesh with our worldview. That's not what we would think of when we think of a Messiah. And so, they really, they are pushing back against all forms of Hellenism by showing this sort of fearless, you know, observance of the traditions of the Torah. But not only is it the Torah, not only is it what they would call the Bible, the 39 books of the Old Testament, not only is it that, there's another piece of this which also comes to the surface in the Gospels. It's the traditions and the rules of their forefathers, the elders. So we've probably talked about, I don't know if we have or not, sort of the, the idea of the hedge of protection around the law, right? There is no work on the Sabbath day, right? Fairly straightforward. But what is work, right? Well, in order to keep us from working on the Sabbath day, then we kind of need a set of rules out here that prevent us from getting close to what might be considered work on the Sabbath day. So, the traditions and the rules that develop around the law serve as sort of a protective hedge to keep you, the religious adherent, from transgressing against the law. This is their way of preserving the law. This is their way of preventing Jewish culture from falling back into Hellenism. From falling back into the hands of the Jews, of the Greeks, right? So that's why when the Pharisees encounter Jesus, it's not just about things like working on the Sabbath day. It's also about washing his hands. Washing his hands is not written in the laws that he has to do that. But here's how you get there. Where did you get that pot? Well, you got it in the marketplace. The marketplace where there are also Greeks. When you picked up that pot, had anyone else touched it before you? Well, I'm sure somebody had. They came up and they picked up the pot and they said, Well, I want this pot and well, put it down. Who was that person? Do you think that he might have been Greek? Well, he might have been Greek. So now you got Greekness on your hands. And now you're going to take Greek germs and you're going to put them in your Jewish mouth and now all of a sudden your food is unclean. Right? Now all of a sudden, your chicken is contaminated with Greekness, and you, Greek chicken is good. I'm not going to lie. It's good, but it's, it's, it's contaminated with Greekness, and now you've ingested it. The food has become unclean, and now you've eaten unclean food because it was cooked in an unclean pot, all because you didn't wash your hands when you got home from the market. Traditions. So these things are set up to keep them not only from transgressing the law, but from falling back into Hellenism. So it's like a, it's almost as if the Jewish culture, especially the Pharisees, are suffering immensely from PTSD. And in order to keep them from going back that direction, we've got to be radical about our observance to the law and to the traditions of you know the elders the traditions and the rules so you get this in you know Matthew 15 2 to 3 i didn't put this in your packet but you can hear it the pharisees and the scribes came to jesus from jerusalem and said why do you why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders for they do not wash their hands when they eat he answered them and why do you break the commandment of god for the sake of your tradition. He goes on to explain how they break the commandment of God, honor your father and mother, which they had never considered before, because eventually, when you start making rules on top of God's law, then all of a sudden, you begin to transgress God's law in favor of your rules. This is how we've always done it. You know, you, you notice that? Have you ever been in, at least in churches where, where you go, well, this is the way we've always done it? And you will go, well, that's not biblical. It's actually against the way God says to do it, but this is the way you've always done it. There you go. Same thing, right? We're the same people, okay? To some degree, human nature has never changed. All right. So, uh, but one of the things that was to the advantage of the Jews is that the Pharisees, By teaching and interpreting the Torah, both written down and oral, and by applying it to everyday life of the people, you go into the marketplace, you come home, you wash your hands, that kind of thing, they democratized religion, meaning they made it accessible to everyone. So you may not, when you read the New Testament, you may think, okay, the Pharisees are the bad guys. But not to the culture around Jesus, they're not. They're the bad guys to you because you read the end of the story where they crucified Jesus. But to the people there, they're not. They are the people that took the Word of God, brought it down to everyday experience where the people actually live, and applied it to all those situations. They were a good preacher, essentially. They had really good object lessons every time they taught, right? And you're like, I get that. All right, that, that makes sense. But what happens a lot of times is, obviously, if people are, one, illiterate, two, uneducated, or three, simply just don't read the copy of God's Word that they have and give themselves to its study, then a person can come in with all kinds of object lessons and make it sound really great and the application sound awesome, but actually be far afield from the actual meaning of the text, right? Happens all the time, okay? So is the case here. The people in general really liked the Pharisees and aligned with the Pharisees, found themselves Pharisees themselves, and yet never realized all the, time, all the while this is actually going to lead to the crucifixion of the Messiah, right? So they democratized religion, which is, you know, there's something to be said for that. The chief instrument that they used to, to, do, to do this kind of teaching and to propagate the Torah and to apply it to the people's lives was the synagogue which became a most powerful institution within Judaism, not only in Jerusalem, but also throughout the whole dispersion. Now, I've had some of you ask this question, and uh, again, maybe not a satisfying answer. The question has been asked, when did the synagogue come about? And the answer is, we don't know. (laughs) How do you like that? Here's Here's what's very clear, is that people are moving back into the land from Babylon, but not just are moving into the land, they're also dispersed outside the land, far and and wide. And they're Jews, they're still Jewish, and they need a way to worship. So what would you do if you're a Christian and you're thrown into a remote area of the world and you're having to live there, what would you do? Well, you'd look down the street and you find find your neighbor is a Christian too. What, What do you do tomorrow? You start a church, don't you? It's probably not much more sophisticated than that. was, well, we've got enough people here. Let's set up a, a place where we can meet and we can at least read the Word together. We can pray. We can sing. We can teach from God's Word. The synagogue becomes a sort of prototype-ish of what the church will eventually become. And by the time Jesus gets in there, there's elders functioning in the synagogue. There's all, it's a functioning system. But it took probably hundreds of years, starting with that first group that comes back from Babylon, or maybe some groups after that, several hundred years prior to that. But the synagogue, by the time the Pharisees come onto the scene, is a convenient way of getting to the people, teaching the word to the people, and then beginning to apply it. So when you think of Pharisee, and when you think of Sadducee, I want you to think about it in a similar way as we might think of a political party in America. Again, okay, bear with me. Republican, Democrat. Some of you might call yourself a Republican. But what do you mean by that? Well, you certainly don't mean that you get paid by the RNC. Probably. Probably. You, you certainly don't mean that you have been on a ballot and that you've run for office. What you mean by that is that you, probably of the two parties that are out there, you might most identify with the ideals in that party. That is kind of like what we see here in this time. You've got some people who are more or less, they seem to be professional Pharisees. They're, some sort of, they're making some sort of money. They're making some sort of living by being Pharisees, official in Jerusalem. You see them coming from Jerusalem to Jesus, and they have some sort of official capacity when they come there. But then there's a whole bunch of other people that align with the Pharisee party, that they might identify themselves as Pharisees, but they don't mean that in any kind of professional sense. They mean that in an ideological sense. We, we believe in the, all the books of the Old Testament. We believe in the teaching of the Torah. We believe in teaching God's Word the way the Pharisees do. We believe in it really like that. We believe God really created the world in seven days or whatever it is. We, we really believe this, that, and the other. And we, we hold to those things and we're, we're conservative by nature, right? So that's kind of what we're seeing here, and that's beginning to be taught in the synagogues. So the reading of the Torah... Uh, accompanied by an interpretive translation into the vernacular, became a distinctive feature of the synagogue service. So not only is the Torah read, but then it's actually translated and interpreted into Aramaic, the common language that's beginning to be uh, circulated in the region at that time. So, the Pharisees affirmed the influence of divine activity on human life. They... Of the three groups, the Pharisees see a middle ground of God. God determines certain things before the foundation of the world, so to speak. But we still have this sort of freedom to operate, so there's a joint effort that's taking place here. But more than that, they believed that there would be reward and punishment for how they responded to God's Word in the afterlife meaning they believed that there would be a resurrection from the dead. We're going to get to the Sadducees who very much don't believe in the resurrection <laughs> from the dead, and we're going to read an important passage where you see this come to light. But they believe in the afterlife, and so that obviously is appealing to a lot of, uh, of the masses as well uh, who actually read the Bible. Uh, so there you go. Um, and, but, and, and the, the other piece of the Pharisees that becomes very clear is that they, they really didn't have a lot of direct power as a group. In other words, when we see, peop- when we see groups like the Sanhedrin, which we'll talk about in a few weeks, um, you know, kind of gain a little bit of power in the land, most of those are not Pharisees. Most of the ruling aristocracy are liberal people maybe you've heard this like that's just always the case so um, the pharisees don't have a lot of power what they do have though is a lot of influence over the common people so the people are kind of being ruled by an aristocracy that doesn't share their ideals exactly and but the pharisees do represent their ideas so the 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 the, I guess the power that the Pharisees do have is really over the people and the teaching capacity that they have over the people. So when the Pharisees are on board with the crucifixion, the people can quickly get on board with the crucifixion, right? Or and various other things, too. Um, but they were, effectively, the group was literate, uh, corporate, voluntary association. So kind of like what a political party is. Uh, which constantly sought influence with the governing class. So you'll see them interacting a lot with the Sadducees, who tend to be the, the aristocracy and the leadership of the of the of the day. Um, but they don't have a lot of political power in that sense, at least in in terms of power and authority. Um, questions? Sure, there are some. James. <coughs> yes. Uh, he has three <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're attacked on Sunday because that's, well, yeah, you're sleeping in and you're going to church or whatever. Yeah. It's done the same thing, yeah. Yeah, I heard somebody say the other day history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. (laughs) And so so you you definitely see some common themes coming back from time to time. That is. For sure. Yeah. Other questions? Well, go ahead. Yeah. Sure. Today, Yeah. 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 And they yeah. Yeah. In f- uh, in fact, those are I believe, if I'm not mistaken, those are Hasidic Jews. Yeah, that's what so they are the Hasidim, the pious ones. That's where Hasidic comes from. But um, I think ideologically, I think they're the they're <coughs> one and the same. At least they're a derivative of the Pharisees, basically, is where, where they would come from. You know, it's, t- it's tough to tell, to be honest with you. Like, where, because, I mean, we're talking, there's so much that's happened in Jewish history of the last 2,000 years, as you well know. You know, so it's, it's kind of hard to tell where these people groups form and, and why one name takes on, you know, why they take on the names that they do. But, but at least that tends to be the common read of Jewish history, is that that's a kind of carryover from the Hasidim. Yeah, strict kosher food laws. Yeah. 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 It, it's it's very strange with Jewish uh, culture nowadays. Like if you interact with a Jew, because you might very well find a Hasidic Jew who keeps dietary food laws and adheres to. Torah restrictions and things like that, but whose belief in God might be considerably liberal, right? Or, or so the Jewish culture nowadays is just it's very wide, and and there's a lot of different groups within um, within Judaism. There's there's a, ref, a ref, what are they called? Reformed, I think it's called Reformed Orthodox. That would be much More in line, like you, like where you would think, like, okay, now all you got to do is just believe in Jesus, you know, like, but but otherwise, you sound very Christian to me, you know, like we part company after Malachi, but man, you sound just like I do with the first 39 books, you know. Uh, I think they're called Reformed Orthodox, I'm not not entirely sure on that, but uh, so you would be kind of closer to them than you would be even the Hasidic uh community, but but yeah, it's um, so anyway. I hope you, we have opportunities to interact with some Jews in the area. I don't know how big the Jewish population is in Tuscaloosa, but uh, I don't know. Take this to them. And we did have our Thanksgiving dinner How'd that go? We had was Well, good. Well, it's always good. It's always interesting. Uh, I, I was one time invited to a Seder meal, and I was going to be out of town that day. Like There was no way I could actually come in. But, uh, it, you know, one of the biggest regrets of my life. So, you know, there it is. So, all right. Well, let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word and grateful for um, history and grateful for the, the, all that you do throughout human history. Uh, to work your plan and to bring it to fruition. Things that we don't even see and we uh, can't even possibly conceive of. Things that you did in this time period to bring about Christ and to to pave the way for his crucifixion and his resurrection and and, and subsequently the salvation of your people. And All those things that we could never have possibly seen if we weren't looking back in the past at what you had done. And we trust that you are still doing that now and that one day in eternity we will perhaps be able to think back on this time period and wonder why we worried and wondered why we feared And wondered why we were so up in arms at things that took place. Because obviously, you are in control. And you have proven that to us time and again. So I pray that all of this would really lead us to trust you more. That you have everything under control. That nothing escapes your notice. So we pray that you would give us that kind confidence in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at ten thirty and Wednesday nights at six fifteen.